For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome to Heard Tell Show. This is twice on Sunday. This is our recap of the week that was at Heard Tell, where we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, get the good information, have great conversations with knowledgeable guests, kind of ignore all that caterwauling that we find all over the news cycle, and get to things that actually matter so we can discern the times we live in. We do this primarily through talking, conversations, discussing with knowledgeable guests, trying to keep wider perspectives, find out things we don't know, challenge our own thinking sometimes, and see if we can't make the world a little bit better place one discourse at a time. We don't want to just add to all the yelling and hollering and fussing on the interwebs and social media and places like that. We had five great guests on this week on Hertel. Uh, the first one was Grace Badalik. And despite the fact that I mispronounced her name six ways to Sunday, she was very gracious, suffered through for us. Great conversation. She started out, she wrote a piece about COVID policy with some certain governors, uh, what's called Calvin Ball. If you don't know Calvin Ball, she'll explain that from the Calvin and Hobbes comic, and it's become its own meme online. But the second part of this conversation got very personal and in-depth, and I just loved it so much. We talked about culture, like the performing arts, like theater, music, things like this that we've some how it got pushed to the side during the pandemic and lockdowns and things like that, and how important they are to us as human beings. She's also a working actress and performer, so she has great insights on that. She also talked about what it was like to be in New York City those early days of the lockdowns when things got very, very dark in a very, very big hurry. Grace Badalik, part of that conversation on Herd Tell right now. So something I've really got you into the arts, got you into acting. Talk about the human side of it. Like, why is that important? Because you talked about, you know, you work with kids. You were in New York City for the worst of this stuff. You saw it firsthand. Yeah. Talk about what the arts means to people, not just as a performer, but, you know, if you're a performer, you started as a fan first. That's just how that works. Talk about the human side of it. And when that's taken away, we really do miss a part of us that's human. That is, it's not as important as your food and things like this, but it really is important to your psyche. And it is important to us as a people, isn't it? Yes, 100%. Um, the human side uh, is incredibly important. I always go back to uh, the Dead Poet Society quote, uh, where uh, Robin Williams' character says, the human race is full of passion, medicine, law, business, engineering. These are all noble pursuits um, and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, and love, these are what we stay alive for. Um, I think we saw a lot of that uh, in the pandemic where people were recognizing, oh, I haven't seen live music in in two years or, oh, I haven't touched somebody uh, in 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 weeks or months or years. Um, people 
even in New York City now, we're seeing people uh, just standing in in crowded crowded concert halls and and crying because they're able to experience these things again, because they're able to experience each other again, because they're able to see each other's faces again. Um, And so I think COVID was just, uh, it just emphasized um, how important human connection um, and artistry really is. Do you think we've learned um, any human lessons out of COVID? We've been talking a lot about, you know, We've learned a lot about how our government functions or doesn't function, to be more specific. Uh, We've learned a lot about how science works and doesn't work. We've learned that the academic and science community needs to work on their communication to the common people by their own admission and to their credit. They realize, like, hey, we're, we're not real good at this TV thing. We need to work on this. Those are all well and good. Have we learned any human lessons, do you think, from this COVID thing? Because you're a performer. You're on the human side of the scale of those things. Are, are we learning anything as human beings about connecting and talking to people and just appreciating life? That, the famous, dead, since you want to go dead poet society, the carpe diem part of the life, are we seizing the day or are we just kind of reverting to our priors and going, well, this just confirms everything I thought before? You know, I can't speak to the general human experience, but I can speak to my own. Um, I know that COVID for me stripped my life of so many unnecessary distractions um, and so many unnecessary pursuits um, and all sorts of unnecessary striving um, and brought me back to what was fundamentally most important in my life, which was family, which was connections with my friends and ensuring that my friends were okay, which was my relationship to God um, and uh, my ability to uh, reflect uh, and um, and uh, process. Um, and so I think we're seeing a lot of people um, kind of get back to basics uh, in a way that is is, beautiful and I think will prove very fruitful specifically in their in the artistic sphere like I can't wait to see what people have been creating um and I think we've only just kind of seen the tip of the iceberg as far as that goes yeah Grace Bedalek uh staying with us on her tell great conversation uh let's take that one step forward um we go forward I know on our program we talk about we do culture and politics I don't think those are uh separable I think they go together, and I don't mean in the culture-roaring way that people have just kind of made a a business model out of it. You know, politics is how people govern themselves, and culture is what those people are. I just don't think you can separate those two things. When you look at it from the culture side, like you just talked about it, stripping away the nonsense, let me just ask you, why do you do it? Because, you know, you have your career, you're a working actor, you're kind of living your dream. Why get in the dirty pool end of it with doing the politics stuff? I think that's a great question and I would I would ask that to you as well. Um, my answer is politics affects policy which affects people. Um, and so I've seen um, in real time the ramifications of political decisions made by our elite class on people like you and me and like my brother and like my family um, and like the kids, that I'm involved with in the Bronx. Um, And I think if we care about each other, uh, we should care 
about politics as well. Yeah, for me, that's exactly what it is, is, you know, um, it's a people thing. And I keep watching the news and they never talk about issues as people and they don't talk about politics as people. And they talk about demographics without somehow realizing that those demographics are all people. And I just got tremendously frustrated, especially when, you know, I went through my health stuff where I couldn't work a quote unquote real job anymore. And, you know, now I do this for 15 hours a day, but um, I just got tremendously frustrated of like, no, this is not how you talk about people. You know, the, the news networks and, and I don't want to bash media because we have lots of good friends in journalism, the good journalists, they're always, you know, it's, it's something somebody told me about writing years ago when I first started writing. And I remember it was like, whatever you're writing about, you're writing about people, whatever business you're in, you're in the people business, you know, it's about people. And so much of our media and culture and politic discourse was completely devoid of people. It was all buzzwords and it's all. Uh, just issues and I want this policy and my team needs to win and it's all power structures and it's like that's why you guys nobody can talk to anybody anymore is because everybody's just talking about these things as if they're in the abstract and you're not dealing with people anymore right right I totally agree and this kind of uh, polarization um, that we see is really unfortunate you know I was in a musical theater program in college that was entirely liberal <laughs> except for me um and we would have i was i i was able to have uh open conversations with people and uh sit down with people over breakfast and talk about policy or um sit down with uh people who didn't necessarily understand uh a conservative perspective and speak openly about why i believed the things that i believed because i believed that they thought the best of me, right? They were, they were assuming my best intentions. And I think that that is what we've, that is to a large extent what we've lost. Um, We've lost the ability to sit down at a table over a meal uh, with a person who we vehemently disagree on as far as policy goes and say to them, you know, I think you're wrong, but I genuinely think that you think that you want the best for the most people. You want the best thing for the most people. And so I'm going to hear you out. Um, and, you know, as I have been in, in, in theater and in the arts, um, I have seen it progress to uh, this place where we are now, which is this kind of cultural illiberalism, where if you don't fall in line with this kind of new orthodoxy, um, you are not allowed to be a part of the industry. Um, and so it, it makes me very sad because I actually think that it, it, um, it is detrimental to, to the caliber of art that we can make. It's detrimental to the, to the quality of our friendships that we can have. It's detrimental to uh, it, the interactions with people that we have on a daily basis. Um, and it's also detrimental to our mental, mental health when we're, when we're, categorizing people in such strict ways um and so i it just it makes me really sad Uh, welcome back to her tell twice on sunday as we continue to recap the week that was one of our favorites uh man i greatly respect I treasure his opinion on things. Even when we disagree on things, he's a good and honorable man. And I love his perspective on things. Dennis Sanders, 
uh, our buddy from up in the Twin Cities. He's a writer. He's a pastor. He also works in some media creation stuff. He always has great insights. Been on the program frequently. Um, while back, we talked a little bit about union labor and some regulation stuff. He wanted to push back on some of that. So, of course, reached out. Of course, you can come on, Dennis. We love having you. Uh, talk union labor. He comes from the perspective both of his parents were uh, United Auto Workers in Flint, Michigan. Uh, as he says in jokes, they were union members, but not of the same union shop, interestingly enough. Dennis talks union labor and what it has been in the past, what it is right now, and pretty clear out about what its future can and should be and how that doesn't match up with what some of the unions seem to think it should be. We also get into things like regulation. Also, Dennis has a wonderful multi-part series that he's writing about the fall of Sears and Kmart. Uh, younger folks may not realize that for 100 years, Sears was what Amazon is now. That was the place to get just about everything. What happened? Well, it was just capitalism and bad management, right? Not exactly. There's a lot more to that story, and it has a lot of implications for how we do economics, how workers are treated, how companies are run, things like this. So one of our favorites, Dennis Sanders, was on the program on last Tuesday, and we get a little bit of that conversation right now. One thing about unions that always strikes me, I think they're really misbegotten in where they're picking their battles right now. Uh, organized labor, especially big labor, they are all in on going against the gig economy, the uh, secondary economy, whatever you want to call it. Why do you want to alienate? Look, unions are down to something like 10% of the workforce. The gig economy is up to something like 30% of the workforce. Why are you picking a fight with the very people that you're arguing that you want to come into your unions? And all you're really doing is alienate them because they're like, look, leave us alone and let us work. This seems really misbegotten to me. That I totally agree with. Um, I think one of the worst things that I've seen, especially the, the law that came out in California, which I think wreaked habit on a lot of gig workers. You know, I think part of it comes from this belief that they think that um, the gig economy is just exploitative. And so they think that, well, wouldn't you really want to just work in an office or, or in an industry or whatever, um, like everyone else? Um, what I think the unions don't realize is that the nature of work has changed. Um, there are a lot of people that want to work on their own. They want to be contractors. They, they want the, th the flexibility that comes with all of that. And so coming in with a law that basically messes messes all of this up isn't helpful and it really just makes uh makes more enemies against unions than um, what is necessary i mean if unions want to be of help in this changed economy then what they should be about is trying to create guilds or things to that extent that would help people who who do go into the gig economy instead of trying to basically mess up what they want to do which is to work independently um, to, and to call their own hours. Yeah, here's where I depart from some of our labor and labor friendly brethren. I think you absolutely have a right to start a union. I've been a supervisor in a company that was non-union. We had it hanging on the walls. I've had, I've, I've facilitated the meetings for union reps to come into the non-union rep. We set them up in a break room. There's very specific rules how you have to handle those things. I, I've done all that. I've, I've interacted with them. I know how those things work. My thing is you absolutely have a right to have a union, but that also means you should absolutely have a right to not have to go through a union to make your livelihood. 
And that just seems to be the disconnect with some of the big labor folks and and people that I know that are genuinely pro-worker and they really believe that that's the best thing to do. If you're just changing one tyranny of a company to the tyranny of a union, and especially if you have a union that also has the backing of the federal government, which all too often is the case nowadays, that's there's no way you can convince me that that's pro-worker because if the union has the backing of the government and you don't have a choice to be in the union or not, where's a worker go then? Yeah, and I agree. One, one of the things I remember growing up that I can just remember, even as a kid, I didn't like this, is um, the whole concept of a, I think they would call it a closed shop, where basically if you took a job, you are automatically part of the union. And there was a part of me that was bothered by that because you didn't have a choice of whether you wanted to be in the union or not. And I, I get what they're trying to get at with um, collective bargaining and all of that, but you've taken that person's choice of what they want to do out of their hands and just made them and just forced them to do something that they don't want to do. And I think, you know, that's kind of related to what's going on with the gig, gig workers is this belief that, unions are good so everyone should should can benefit and realizing that there is also choice in this people don't have to join a union um, unions are voluntary organizations and even in spite of all the good that i think that they do do and they do a lot that it's good they're voluntary and people shouldn't be forced to be part of one if they don't want to be part of one and i think that's okay that's part of to me, that's part of what it is to be an American. It's a sense of choice of what we want to do. It's part of what's killing the unions, too, that the uh, yeah. union was always supposed to be the voice of the worker. Well, everybody's got a voice now because they all have social media accounts. Like they can Google what their company's doing. They don't need their union rep to explain stock options to them. They all has as technology just kind of made part of what the traditional union was obsolete. They've made part of it. I don't think they've made all of it. Uh, um, and I think this is maybe where the initial pushback came when um, when I wrote to you a while back is the belief that because um, we have a more, um, I don't know, atomized society, um, social media, things that allow us to speak up, we tend to think that we have more power than we used to. And I think that there, there in some cases that's true. But in other cases, it's not. You may not have the power to say, I would like to have better benefits or to deal with better health care. So there are some areas in some industries, not every industry, your one voice doesn't always um, carry when you're up against a management. And so that, that, that's where you would see a need for a union to kind of be that voice. Where I think the, I think the, the the caveat is, you have to want to be, to have them be your voice. They can't just come in and be your voice. Um, that I think is wrong because that turns people off. People don't want to have something being done for them, and in some cases they don't want necessarily a one size fits all thing. Um, so unions are still necessary, but. In this day and age, in the age of social media, in the age where of a gig worker, it's not going to operate like it did in 1968. Um, we're not that economy. And that's, I think, part of the problem of why unions aren't doing as well 
is because they haven't necessarily always changed with the times. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, going back overseas, UK, we love having our UK contributors and we're working to try to get contributors to other parts of the world as well. We live in a great big world. We don't want to ever just funnel information and pretend like we're just in our own little corner of it. One of our great Young Voices contributors, Alice Watson Brown, super sharp, great insight. Uh, really enjoyed having her on. Good feedback to this interview and conversation we had with her talking about the UK response to Ukraine and the Russian invasion there. Uh, also talked a little bit about leadership. Boris Johnson had been uh, mired in scandals, having all kinds of problems before this crisis come. We'll check in with how he's reacting to thing. Uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke to UK's parliament, how that landed. Also asked her about uh, the perception of the United States' leadership or lack thereof during this crisis. And her thoughts on that are something you definitely want to hear. Also, towards the end, we talked about the changing liberal world order and how things are changing based off the events in Ukraine. Alice Watson-Brown, fantastic conversation. Got a lot of play on social media. People really responded to this one. And you can listen to part of that conversation right now. King, though, um, there's there's been this sort of thing of, Okay, maybe the UK is trying to find their place in the world because, you know, obviously the British Empire is no more. We're put past the Cold War stuff. And then you have the Brexit stuff that just drug on for years after years after years. Is it the feeling now of like, okay, we're not sure what's next with our relationship with Europe, but this aggression from Putin, this this obvious clear and present danger to the Western world order, does this seem like it's clarified it of? okay, we need to put the Brexit stuff behind us. We have to figure out what our relationship with wider Europe is and we need to move forward. And this is what it's going to look like. It's probably not completely a thought, but it seems like maybe it's been clarified a little bit the last few weeks. Yeah, people are tired of Brexit being in the media. They're, they're tired of it. Uh, people still poll and supposedly the latest poll is that 49% of British people still think it was wrong to leave. Um, I don't know how much I trust those polls. They don't release the questions that they ask the public so but um i think with our relationship with the european union in the context of ukraine the uk probably would have acted in the interests of nato rather than the eu as a foreign policy body anyway and we we were able to introduce our sanctions but we just avoided and surpassed the intergovernmental processes of the eu which are incredibly complicated and i think Despite our spats with migrant over migrants and economic migrants, mainly with Macron, we have to show unity. We can't be petty and talk about technocratic clauses of Brexit and where people can fish. That's not what politicians are there for. This is what these institutions and these alliances were made for, is to stand up to threat and balance power. Because Putin sees this as a zero-sum game. And if we retreat because we are fractured over some, a political decision that occurred in 2016, how weak are we? We have there will be no moral backbone if that's what our politicians, you know, our politicians do. And I think it would be even an even graver disappointment if that is what prevented us from taking coherent action. So I think hopefully the Brexit debate is over. Um, when it comes to the bitterness, the the sole bitterness that encompassed 
people and the division, the hatred. I, I mean, I, it was my first kind of first kind of years of becoming politically mature, I guess. I first Brexit and then COVID. And each of them was I'm for and against this. And if you don't agree with me, you are X and you are Y and you don't have any heart or any soul. And the it's strange. I don't know if this happened with America and Trump you voting Republican in 2016 or but the hatred that ensued against people who had voted leave was unprecedented and it I was you know young and I I would have voted leave if I was able to vote I was only 16 at the time um but I, I couldn't, I felt scared to talk to my friends about it, but now we can talk about it loosely because we know we have way bigger problems in the world and that's Ukraine. So hopefully it'll bring, it'll just ease the kind of social tensions. Yeah. Talking to Alice Watson Brown, uh, you raise a good point. So let me just kind of wrap this up, uh, in that way. Then, uh, you talk about generational thing, your generation's too young to remember the cold war, although you've obviously it shaped a lot of the world that you grew up in. Uh, things like Brexit, things like this Russian invasion now, these are probably going to be generational defining things for your generation's politics going forward in the UK and probably Europe's as well. We, we've already seen in Poland and countries like, you know, they got the border right there. They're dealing with this stuff. How do you think that plays out as they look forward? Because we were kind of all assuming that the COVID stuff might be a generation shaping thing, but this may actually kind of eclipse some of that. How do you see that going forward and how it's going to play with that rising generation of, you know, post-college starting to become professionals and how they see the world? Well, there is a sort of running joke on my generation that we're really bored of living through paramount historical events. <laughs> We've had huge constitutional change, a global pandemic, and possibly on the brink of World War Three. Um, to me, what is interesting is how the global liberal order changes and how it will develop. Um, and I possibly see our generation as being the generation that marks the development of a multiplex world, uh, wherein it's not necessarily defined by hegemony or your balance of power, but a multitude of globalized systems, be it trade, finance, non-government organizations, multinational companies, uh, all forming different alliances for different purposes rather than just the United Nations or, you know, the ICC or, you know, and I think that is a good thing, but also terrifying because when it comes to multinational corporations like Amazon or big tech, none of that is democratically accountable so that means it's all self-reliance. It's all self-protection. It's all finding about how you can keep as much control over your own life as possible because our lives are so commodified. We're all online now. Every part of us is sellable and usable to, for a profit to an advertising company. And I think rather than looking at it as how, what are we the generation of, of data or are we the generation of war and pandemics? I'm, I'm leaning towards the former. Mm. That's my opinion. Great, great answer to an impossible question to answer. So good job on that, uh, Alice Watson Brown. One last thing to kind of round this back to where we started: the viewpoint of the UK and of Europe a little more broadly. 
what's the viewpoint over there of America's leadership? We talk, you know, we're obsessed with ourselves. Let's just call it what it is because we think the whole world revolves around us. Uh, but what does Europe and the UK specifically, how do they see America in this crisis? Do they see us as followers? Do they see us as leaders? Do they see us indifferent? How is the current American leadership playing during this crisis in Ukraine? Well, I don't know. Uh, firstly, I don't think there's anything wrong with American exceptionalism. It's it's a very interesting phenomenon, phenomenon that is a, it's a very specific form of patriotism, which I'm interested in. Um, but I my answer to that question, it really depends if you think that Trump would have been better in this situation or Biden. Personally, um, I think Donald Trump would have been slightly better because he could have mobilized some of the more controversial allies that Biden wouldn't want to go near with a 10 foot barge pole like Saudi Arabia, for example. There are reports that Saudi aren't even answering Biden's calls. I had that on the radio. Um, I think from our perspective, we need a leader and this is America's perfect chance to exercise itself as not only a a hard power when it comes to sanctions or even, you know, emphasizing the mutually assured destruction uh, concept that was so key in the Cold War, Um, but also as a, a normative power, a power of promotion of democracy and freedom. Um, But a lot of us now don't necessarily look to America as this beacon of freedom and hope. I think exposed by the sheer impact that COVID had, not at a political level, but at the health level of of the US people. People are very sick in Western countries. And I think the US is a kind of powder keg of that, be it from processed food, or from bad governments, healthcare inequalities. We're not necessarily looking there domestically, but we we would feel incredibly insecure without America with us on the world stage. Yeah, we do too. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell Show. Twice on Sunday, continuing to review the week that was. Uh, While the news stories are dominated with things like Ukraine and like politics, folks still have to buy stuff and they're still noticing gas prices and inflation and it's getting expensive out there. So we do what we do frequently on this program. We had our friend Jericho Hill back. He's an economist, works for one of those three letter, excuse me, four letters, kind of the running joke. He works for one of those four letter government agencies, but his opinions are his and his alone. Uh, for this matter, but he's our economist buddy. He comes on, explains these things so well that even I can understand them. Gas prices, inflation, uh, how these things actually work. Also, how the war in Ukraine and Russian aggression and the sanctions against Russia are going to greatly affect the world economy in multiple, multiple ways. Also talk about how things, like we talked about with other guests, the dirty Russian oligarch money, how the unseen parts of the economy greatly affect the seen parts of the economy. So how things like the UK cracking down and the sanctions are going to affect the wider world economy. Great insight from Jericho Hill. As always, he always throws in a few little wrestling uh, references as well. For those in the know, they can catch on all those little nuggets. Jericho Hill on Herd Tell. Here's a snippet of it right now. We were just talking about the dirty money, the oligarch money. Talk about, because you're an economist, but you're also a sports fan, you keep up with the culture. Explain to folks the ultra-wealthy, things like a sports team, like a Chelsea, things like a yacht, 
those aren't just token toys. Those are also ways of parking money when you basically have no way to park massive amounts of money, any other way to do it. And you got to put it somewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, art is another great example of a way to park money. Um, but, but certainly, so of course, some of the, some of the folks that, you know, invest in, in sports teams do a very good job of increasing, you know, that investment and treating it like a business and, and others, it, it is simply just, as you said, uh, a money dump. There's, uh, I think this might be less of an issue for, for most uh, American sports leagues, but certainly soccer throughout the world is a sort of well-known dumping ground for, for some of this. Um, real estate is another um, dumping ground. Um, you know, lots of, uh, uh, there's also lots of, you know, uh, obfuscated uh, real estate holdings. So for, uh, at the very high end, it doesn't affect the average person when trying to buy a house. People don't buy homes that are hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Unless you're filthy rich. Um, but, you know, who exactly holds those very high end uh, real estate, you know, homes, you know, is, is another thing where, you know, you may not necessarily know who actually, you know, owns that house. Um, but it's there to, to park money. It's a diversification strategy. Now, Wu-Tang. <laughs> Wu-Tang Financial. Uh, talking to Jericho Hill, master of many things, but mostly economic things. Okay. When we have an uncertainty like the Ukraine situation, this looks like it's going to be at least a semi-protracted war, at least through the summer, probably at the very least. How does the market start to adjust? Because they can't just keep bouncing out of fear and uncertainty. They're going to settle on something, especially if this starts looking like it's going to go for a while. What do you, because remember before this, we thought we pretty much had this summer economically figured out. The Fed's going to yep. raise interest rates three or four times. Yep. Uh, we're going to have an election year. So they're going to, they're going to, you know, Jimmy the money. We're going to have another stimulus package so they can run on that. We, we were thought we get inflation under control. Yeah, like we everything thought, looked great. Yeah. We thought we had this computer. year under control. Look, at some point though, the powers that be are going to make a decision on what path to take. How do you think that shakes out here in the near term, probably over the next two, three months? Uh, I think I first have to say there's a lot of personal bias here about that path because um, I apparently have more than a quarter of Ukrainian blood in me. Um, so I have uh, a little bit of a loyalty sympathy here. I don't see this conflict ending um, nicely. I don't see it ending a whole lot anytime soon. It's going to cost Russia quite a bit. You know, their economy is already, you know, quite hurting. You, you can watch the, the ruble essentially do a roller coaster free fall. Um, and you can watch videos now of folks fighting for stuff in grocery stores, which is reminiscent of another time when Russia used to be called the Soviet Union. Now, um, you know, how it all, you know, I, I wish I could say how it all shake out. I, I don't know what the military situation is going to look like. I, I certainly have, you know, hopes that, that some Ukrainian solution is found uh, to the benefit of the Ukraine people. Uh, I feel great, feel badly for them um, and have been doing what I can to, to, to support the Ukrainian Red Cross and other such organizations that desperately need help. Um, you know, but you know, think about Europe now, and this is like in the short run, let, let, let's be a little more optimistic within the short run. Uh, Europe is going to suffer from pretty high uh, heating bills and, and, and energy prices too, because they're shutting down a lot of the uh, lot of the oil and gas investments they were doing. And now you've got Germany saying, oops, maybe we don't want to shut down the nuclear power plants that we were planning on doing. Uh, maybe the best thing to be green is to actually build more nuclear power plants. Uh, I think that would be a really really good change 
Yeah, I, I've kind of, you know, we love our analogies here. I've, I've taken to calling it like Jules Verne. You know, he got an astonishing amount of things right on Journey to the Moon that, you know, three guys on a couch. We put three guys on a couch in a capsule. He used a projectile. It was a capsule. They had to, like, he got a lot of stuff really right. The problem was we needed to wait 84 years to NASA to figure out the really important stuff like, hey, let's not use a cannon. Let's build a Saturn V and get it up in the low Earth orbit. I think that's where we're at with some of the energy stuff right now, where we can see the solution. We've figured out kind of the big picture part. Okay, this is possible, and here's how we do it. But there's a whole lot of people that are still in the science fiction realm of, oh, we'll just put them in a cannon and shoot them up there. And that's how they're kind of dealing with this energy crisis stuff. That's not how the world works. We can see it, but we're still 40, 50, 60 years, whatever, maybe sooner with technology from really changing how energy, especially geopolitical energy and how practical energy for the poor folks in the world are. Am I wrong in using that kind of analogy of like people can see it and then things like Putin kind of bring it back and focus like, okay, we're not as close as we are. I think Putin's action might have accelerated that timeline a little bit uh, for the Western world. Now, yeah, I think you're right. And when we, we just talked about substituting, you know, uh, coal power plants for uh, instead of uh, and, and use nuclear power plants instead. Right. And then seeing maybe there'll be a lack of environmental activism against uh, against nuclear power plants now going forward, particularly in Europe, um, although nuclear power has been pretty stalled here in the U.S. as well, which is unfortunate, um, you know. As an aside, right, I used to work for a power company. So, you know, I like to think I know one or two things about power generation. So I'm going to bring some of that knowledge here. Uh, Even if we today could build, you know, 100 nuclear power plants and we actually had a site to put them, the uh, distribution of that power is yet another complication. And our energy grid uh, still desperately needs repairs. It needs upgrading. You would need a lot of more additional substations. You need some, you know, substation infrastructure upgrades. I don't know what you do about the Texas power grid. That thing's a mess. Um, yeah, you know. So just think about all those moving parts. We we are still a long ways away from from being able to to move our economy off of uh, oil and coal. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell Twice on Sunday. Thrilled that you're with us. Thank you for sticking with us all week long and for this recap that we've been doing on Sundays. Y'all asked for it. You wanted more of this. We did it. As long as you want to listen and watch it, we're happy to do it for you. Uh, on Friday, we had on Regan Farrell. This is a tough topic, but we don't dodge tough topics here. Uh, we talked about sex workers, human trafficking, regulation, decriminalizing and legalization of sex work, things like this. Now, why do we talk about that? Well, here's why. Because when you're talking about things like criminal justice reform and government accountability and policy and things that really, really matter, there's always bleeding edges of that where things get really, really messy. It's especially true when you're dealing with things like sex work and human trafficking. It gets messy in a hurry. The mess is because of a couple of reasons. One is there's a tendency in law enforcement to start pushing the boundaries on what are and are not rights. And if a right is not a right for everybody, it's not a right anymore. So just because you slap something like sex works on something doesn't mean those people don't have rights. It's very important to discuss it. Also, human trafficking gets a whole lot of play, but too often in the headlines, what is claimed to be human trafficking turns out to not be that. Why is that? And we've got the data to prove it. Law enforcement and police organizations love to throw out the big terms like that, but then the crimes don't seem to match the evidence. 
And it turns out it's a really good way to get attention. It's a good way to get a whole lot of money and funding. We need to unpack all these things because it goes to how we police ourselves, how the police police us, how we have relationships with our government, and how bad policy usually starts by not treating people like they're human beings and not just facts, figures, and ways to get more money and or get on your moral high ground and yell at folks. It's a tough topic. It's an in-depth topic. Regan Farrell did a wonderful job breaking down through all of it. Thing like the Super Bowl conspiracy theories every year, how there's going to be massive human trafficking around the Super Bowl. She's got the data and stats to figure it all out. Tough topic, but that's what we do on Hertel. We turn down the noise on it and we get to the facts at hand. Regan Farrell, right now on Hertel. All right, I'm just going to throw you the question before we dig into the issue, the pushback. Well, it is illegal, so why do I care? It is illegal, but I try to begin with a harm reduction framework there. Um, if your main issue is helping victims of helping people get out of something that you feel is immoral or is threatening them, then I completely understand. But the best way to do so is decriminalizing sex work. Then you're not bothering anyone who out of their own volition has engaged in this or needs to engage in this work in order to provide for their family. Sex work is often referred to as a victimless crime. Um, it's not so dissimilar to other things that are completely legal, such as selling your plasma. Uh, we can have a longer debate about the ethics of work and labor if we want to, but that's um, not for today. But a lot of people will take jobs that they don't either care about or are actively destructive to them. Um, I think of my father working in factories his entire life who is not able to stand up straight anymore. And so... When you're talking about sex, it's often because people feel some sort of way about the morality, and that's why it's criminalized. Yeah. Now, let's get some nomenclature done. There is a difference between decriminalizing it and making it completely legal. There's a little bit of a nuance there, just so everybody has the nomenclature right. What's the difference between legalizing it and decriminalizing it? This is language we hear with uh, marijuana a lot of the times. We've seen it with gambling now, where gambling has gone mainstream. Uh, just give folks the nuance of that a little bit of what exactly we're talking about here, because it, it comes off like we're going to have societal approval of something, and that's not exactly what we're talking about here. It's not tacit approval. Um, decriminalizing sex work is preferred by sex workers because it doesn't hold a criminal penalty. Legalization often looks like um, what's available in Reno, Nevada, for example, which is just a state-owned monopoly. It imposes harsh regulations. Sex workers there are only able to work in the state-owned brothels. They're not allowed to work as independent contractors. And they actually turn over about 50% of their wages to the, the pimps, the brothel owners, in that system. Decriminalization allows sex workers to operate as independent contractors, form their own coalitions, um, really work out what they want to and make their own hours. Now, over in Europe, because uh, I lived in Germany uh, two different times, over in Europe, other parts of the world, this is already kind of the standard, and yet somehow their societies have not completely collapsed into burning piles of nothingness. Um, I'm being a little facetious because, again, I understand this is icky to people. I understand a lot of people have a moral problem with it, but they call this the world's oldest profession for a reason. Human nature is undefeated. Uh, some of this is us beating our heads against the wall against something that's going on, and we just don't seem to want to have a realistic conversation about it, do we? No, not at all. This is going to continue happening. You're not going to see the oldest profession um, immediately cave in the moment that 
you have criminalized it, you haven't, it still continues in the, the shadows and it is just really dangerous for the people involved. So this goes back to what we were talking about, harm reduction. You're not going to take somebody that's working on the street or out of a hotel room or whatever stereotype you have in your head about sex work. You're not going to take them from zero to getting a college education and a, and a middle-class job. That doesn't go from zero to 60. So like we've seen, again, I hate to use the examples, but people understand um, things with legalizing drugs and drug reduction and drug harm reduction. Gambling is another example. If we're going to have good policy in these fields, even if you're dead set against them, there's a reality here of, hey, these people can't go from zero to 60 to doing it to dead stop. You've got to have some middle grounds and some steps involved, don't you? Entirely. Um, Often human trafficking victims first experience the police is in handcuffs, not as they're being helped. And it's incredibly difficult for a lot of these human trafficking victims, once it's discovered that they're victims, to overturn their convictions. And you can imagine um, a world where sex work is decriminalized and there is no record. And so this person is found out to be a victim. They receive resources, help, job training, and they're not spending all of their hard-earned cash trying to overturn a conviction that is wrongly imposed upon them. We've seen it in other areas of the criminal justice system, especially on what we call the low end, which we probably shouldn't refer to at that end. But, you know, the petty crime end, things like this. This is really a situation, you know, again, like drug use, like recreational drug use. We seem to be making more criminals than we actually seem to be doing anything about actual crime, don't we? We certainly do. Uh, You're hearing pushes for something called the end demand model, which sex workers advocate against. This criminalizes the client, but not the worker. In practice, this happens in um, Amsterdam, for example. In practice, this actually just drives the transaction further underground because sex workers will work to protect their money, their transaction, and their client. Um, You have a very traditional sort of cleaning in the window, saying hello, offering the prices. This can't happen under the end-demand model because you have to speed up the entire transaction. The client is often anxious of getting arrested, and so instead, the worker will just hop in the car, and then they have to negotiate once they're already in the car. They can't assess the situation before they're engaging. Uh, That'll do it for this edition of Heard Tell Twice on Sunday. Be back with weekly episodes every weekday morning, Heard Tell. If you're subscribed on the YouTube channel, if you are subscribed on any of the podcasting platforms, you'll automatically get it every morning. Brand new episode of Herd Tell each weekday. Every afternoon, the uh, Herd Tell Good Talks portion. That's just the interviews. We break those out. They come out every afternoon. Folks really love to respond to those. That's a great thing to share on your social media, too, especially because these things are always timely. We come, the topics at hand come up, you can go back, pull them up, send them out again. And a lot of our guests come back and forth over and over again. So if you're subscribed, you can go through the archive, see their previous appearances on Herd Tell. Also, our partnership with Big Talker Radio. Uh, thrilled to be working with them as always. They've been revamping the new Facebook pages up. Looks fantastic. They stream Herd Tell every weekday, 6 a.m. with a replay at 3 p.m. They also stream uh, the Twice on Sunday program we're doing right now. You can go on there. If you're a Facebook user, they have all the video from all the episodes that we've done since partnering with them on their Facebook page, Big Talker Network. Just put that in the search block, come right up for you. You can go to the video page, catch past episodes, and watch the live streams when they come up. Appreciate them. Now, 
we get back to business. We have more hotel coming up this week, continuing to turn down the noise of the news cycle. We bring on great guests that are knowledgeable. Some of them will push your cha- push and challenge your thinking a little bit. Some of them you won't agree with. We have on all kinds. We have conservatives on. We have libertarians on. We have progressives on. We push it because that's how you do grown folk adulting culture and politics. You got to work at it. And we'll continue to work hard as long as you want to listen and watch it. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we appreciate you always joining us for Hurtel. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you soon on Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So much lemon.